All right, so this first slide here, this is going to kind of give us the big overall picture of the paragraph. It's as a general rule of thumb, you know, when you're studying a book of the Bible, you always want to make sure you've got a, a clearly defined section that you're studying. It's pretty easy to get off base if we just pull one verse or one sentence out of context and we don't think about the whole thing that's being said. You know, imagine if you wrote an email to someone or you wrote a letter to someone and they just took one sentence out of that and focused on it. You would push back and say, no, you should look at my whole paragraph at least, or ideally the whole letter. So we're going to try to tackle the sections paragraph by paragraph so that we can make sure that we clearly understand uh, the argument that the Apostle Paul is making. So there's points up there on the slide. These are not exactly the same points that you have there on the notes, but we're going to hit this from two different angles. But basically, as I say there at the top in page 14, his answer to this question of why humanity needs God to reveal righteousness through the gospel is because there's also wrath that's being presently revealed from heaven against all mankind. That's what he says in verse 18. So he's not just thinking of wrath like at Jesus' second coming or at the final judgment, but he's saying even in the present, right now, God is already showing his righteous displeasure with sin. And then he's going to go on to make several points and explaining how this is so. The first point there is he's going to say that all men know God. So let's just look at verse 18. It says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And it's going to be a little bit later when he actually comes right out and says what this truth is that they're suppressing. But in the context, it's pretty clear the truth that they're suppressing is the truth of the existence of God and their accountability to him. They, they know it's true. All men know that there is a God, but it's something that they suppress. They try to live as if he's not there. So God is giving humanity some of the consequences of their sin before the final judgment. And God is right to do this because men suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know God, but live as if they do not. Number two, all men know God because he's revealed himself to them. So how do they know God? It was never going to be them crawling up a ladder and finding God on their own. He was never going to be found through their own investigation. It always had to be God coming down to us and revealing himself to us. So there in verse 19, Paul gives the reason why. He's got that little word, since there, in verse 19, the beginning of 19, he's giving the reason why he can say that men are wrongly suppressing the truth, i.e., they're denying something that's plain to them. So it's suppressed, and it's evil, and it's accountable, because it was so plain and obvious. It was something that they shouldn't have missed. Paul can then say, because... That's it, being suppressed because God has revealed himself to them in verse 19. Let me just read that. It says, Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. Now, sometimes you'll hear an argument that says that that to them could also be translated as like within them. And that would be the idea that God has revealed himself to us internally, maybe through our conscience. Well, I think that's absolutely true, and that is going to be an important part of Paul's argument in just a second. He's going to go on, like the slide shows up there, to explain how he's revealed. And he has revealed himself through creation, and we are part of creation. So we are part of the revelation. I just don't think that that's what Paul's getting at right here. He's not saying within them at this point, but he's saying to them. He's made himself known to them. As I say there at the bottom of that paragraph, people are created with God's fingerprints on them. And it's an act of their will that suppresses this knowledge. 
So this is very encouraging when we're in gospel conversations with someone. Sometimes we feel hesitant to talk about our faith because we know going into it that they're going to be opposed to it. They're going to call us fools, unscientific, naive, backwards. Those are the kind of labels that we would hear. Or we're just going to go into the conversation assuming that there's a lot of things that we have to prove first. So we're going to have to have like all the answers to all of their questions. And sometimes that freezes us up and causes it. I don't know. I think I just created a word there. It causes us to freeze and it makes us not want to enter the conversation in the first place. But what Paul's saying here should actually encourage all of us that when you go and talk to someone, no matter who it is, because this is all very much about all people, that there's something in their heart of hearts that will connect with what you're saying. That person you're talking to does have an awareness that they have a God. And he has revealed himself to them. And one of the ways he's revealed himself is through them. They themselves are part of the creation. They're part of what's sometimes called this, this natural revelation or this general revelation. No matter how hard they try, and they will try hard, right? Because they're in rebellion towards God. We all were before we were born again. But they can't escape the fact that they have God's fingerprints on them. Another way I like to think of this, especially if I'm teaching kids, you know, it's like a cell phone, right? When you get a cell phone, it doesn't come as a blank slate. It comes with a, all kinds of prepackaged software already on there, sometimes more than you actually want to be on there, right? All kinds of apps. In a way, we already came into this world with a prepackaged software. We had a conscience. We had an awareness of right and wrong. We had an awareness that some things are beautiful and some things are not. We had an awareness of how to use language and logic and math, all these types of things. Well, where did that come from? It came from our Creator. So even in the argument, when they're trying to argue against your position, they're having to use all of those natural abilities that God gave in the first place. So then, Paul's going to say there at the end of verse 20, because of this, if they all know God, and they all know God because He's revealed Himself to them, then therefore all men are without excuse for rejecting God. I think that's the main point of the end of verse 20. This, this revelation, this revealing that He's done, it's only partial. All revelation is partial, right? We'll never know everything. We can't know everything about God. That would make us God, and we never will be. So God has never revealed himself exhaustively. He's never revealed through nature how someone can be saved. So the gospel isn't present in this revelation. People aren't going to hear the gospel message through the stars or through looking at a beautiful sunset. Someone's going to have to come and share it that with them. This is going to become Paul's burden when we get to chapter 10. But, and this is the thing, if they've already rejected the revelation that they've been given, then God is not obligated to give them any more. So this is the, this is the big dilemma, right? Sometimes we get this question, well, what about the person that's never heard? What about the person that's never had the gospel come to them? And Paul's answer would be, but they've already rejected what they have been given, which is evidence that even if they were given more, they would still reject it. We would all keep on rejecting our Lord unless He did something to work in our hearts. Next point there is that all men demonstrate their rejection of God by their actions. So in verses 19 through 20, he kind of took a little bit of a break to explain what he meant by all men knowing God. But now here he returns in verse 21 to give us the reason for God's wrath. So specifically, why is God revealing his wrath? And he has that little word there, for, in verse 21 to show that this is a reason. It's because of their godlessness and their wickedness. Even though men know God, they do not honor him as God or give him thanks. Instead of glorifying God, they choose to worship the creation over the creator. He says that in verse 23 and, and says something similar in verse 25. 
even though they claim to be wise, they act like fools. That's what Paul's saying there in verse 22. So therefore, we come to verse 24, God is right to punish them for their rejection. So let me just read a little bit of that. So let's pick up in verse 24. It says, therefore, God gave them over. As, you, as I read through this, notice that he's going to say that three times. So three different times, we're going to get this refrain, he gave them over. So therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God. See that again, the truth about God. For a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over, there it is again, to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. And then he goes on to just keep describing all of the various manifestations of sin. So at the bottom of the page there, I say, Paul describes the consequences of mankind's rebellion three times using the word exchanged or handed them over to describe mankind's action. Oh, I'm sorry, three times he says they exchanged. So three times he says they've exchanged the truth for a lie in some way. So three times God has responded to their exchange by giving them over or handing them over to an appropriate response. This action of giving over should be viewed as a, this, here I'm quoting from our book, as a positive judicial decision on God's part, whereby he sentenced people to the very sins they have chosen for themselves. So there's a very exact there's a very appropriate way that God meets out this justice, which again fits into the broader theme of the fact that everything that our God does is right. In general, when we say that, that's a very heartening thing to us, right? That our God always does what is right. But that's only encouraging if we know that we've been made right in Christ. Because if we had to approach a God who always does what is right, and we ourselves weren't right, well then, like the famous preacher Jonathan Edwards said, it would be a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God, would it not? If we had to approach a right and perfect judge without being right ourselves, And you can see that he's giving them a penalty that fits their crime. He gives them, in a sense, what they've wanted. He, this is really emphasized in verse 28 here. So, as a general rule, I'm not going to emphasize Greek words, but I just wanted you to see just a snapshot here of how Paul's using a little bit of a play on words. And in, in our English translations, we could probably bring this out with the word worthwhile and worthless. You see how those are kind of related words that sound the same? He's doing something similar. So this is just my own stab at a translation here, verse 28. Paul says, And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God handed them over to a worthless mind, so that they do things that are not proper. So they did not think it, in another way you could say there, they didn't see fit to acknowledge God. They just didn't see it as appropriate. They just didn't think there was any necessity to it. To them, it wasn't a worthwhile endeavor. So the appropriate response then, if they didn't want to use their thinking, their affections, all those great things that God has given them to use, if they didn't want to use them in a worthwhile fashion, 
then God was very just in turning their affections around towards, towards worthless things. So God handed them over to worth, a worthless mind so that they do things that are not proper. In verses 29 through 31, he's going to go on to describe what those improper things are. And here's, and here's really the, the nail in the coffin, so to speak, this indictment against us as humans. Even though we knew there was a God, even though he'd revealed himself, even though then he is just then to hold us accountable, we still do wrong even though we know it's wrong, even though we have a guilty conscience over it even though we know those things are worthy of death. That's what Paul is going to say at the end of the passage here. Let me pick it up in verse 32. He says, Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but they also approve of those who practice them. So let me just try to take a stab at explaining that there in this paragraph. So because they're created in God's image, all people know right from wrong. And they know their actions deserve punishment. So again, that's another thing that you can take confidence in. When you go and you're sharing the gospel with someone, they might tell you, well, I don't really believe in God. And I don't think it's actually real helpful to say something like, well, yes, you do. And they're like, no, I don't. Yes, you do. That's not going to be very effective, right? You're going to have to take an indirect approach. You're going to have to take an indirect approach to show them that they don't live consistently with the thought that there is no God. But also, you can take great confidence in the fact that, as a human, they do have a conscience. Again, that conscience can be seared. They could be ignoring their conscience. But they do have a general sense that some things are right and some things are wrong. And here, Paul says, they actually know that there's a God who they're accountable to, that the things they're doing are worthy of death. Think about that. They know that they deserve the death penalty for these actions. But they not only will continue to do them, but they'll celebrate and approve of other people doing them. That's a general picture of humanity, all, all people included. And again, they become self-deceived. That's part of having this worthless mind. They actually do start believing lies. And so if someone tells you, I'm an atheist, they, they may have truly convinced themselves of that. But there is some connection still. They still bear the fingerprints of God. And that's a great confidence to us when we go and we speak to Him. It's against this backdrop of the revelation of God's wrath that God also reveals his righteousness through the preaching of the gospel. I'll, I'll pause there for a second. Any, any questions so far over that first paragraph? It's bleak, right? But it's one way it's been described to me is if you want to sell a diamond, right? They always put it against black velvet a really dark background when you walk into that jeweler's case. The gospel is more precious and our Savior is more brilliant because of the dark background that he found us in, right? The good news is only good news if there's bad news, right? That's the only way it works. So we have to be winsome about it, right? I was reading a book recently and someone said, you just can't burp out the gospel. I thought that was a clever way of putting it. You know, you don't just walk up to someone and tell them you're going to hell or repent or burn, you know, that type of stuff. Sometimes we get that, you know, from a street preacher or someone holding a sign at a football game. That's what this writer meant by burping out the gospel. We should be more winsome than that. We should try to present the gospel in a more um, packaged way, so to speak. We can the apostle will talk about adorning the gospel with our lifestyle. We don't have to be obnoxious about it. But on the other hand, we should be bold, right? Because when we go and we talk to someone about their sin, and we ultimately have to, if they're going to repent of that sin, then we should take confidence in knowing they, they do know what we're talking about here. They do know that they're guilty. They do know that there's a God who created them 
and who they're accountable to. All right, let's go a little further. Let's go to the, the next paragraph here. Let's go to chapter 2. So this would be page 16 in the notes. So at this point, if you were a, a Jewish reader of this gospel, or even if you were an especially religious person, but not necessarily a believer, you probably would have been nodding along with Paul. Like, yeah, you go get them, Paul. That's how those Gentiles live. That's how the pagans live. Those heathens, right, that don't have our religion. Especially the Gentiles would have looked on their, their I'm sorry, the Jewish people would have looked on their Gentile neighbors in that way. And, and for some good reasons, because the Gentiles were very pagan in their lifestyle. It reminds me, though, a little bit of the, of the prophet Amos. Other people have made this connection, too. Remember the prophet Amos? He shows up and he starts preaching in, in Israel, but he starts describing all of the surrounding nations' sins first. So God is going to pronounce judgment on all of these surrounding nations. And then after he's got his listeners on the hook and they're nodding along, yes, <laughs> they do deserve it. Then he pulls the punch or he pulls the rug out from under him and then he indicts them as well. Remember the prophet Nathan does the same thing with David. Nathan shows up in David's court and he tells him this hypothetical story about a man who took a, another man's favorite lamb and killed it. And David's like, that man should die, right? It's really easy to pass judgment on someone else's sin. But then remember what Nathan says? You are the man, right? So I think Paul, maybe, I don't know if he's thinking of those two stories or this is just a common technique, but he's essentially doing the same thing. Right after he's gotten us to agree that, yes, humanity in general is in this dark predicament, he now specifically turns to the religious person. And one of the questions in this chapter is, at what point does he directly start addressing the Jewish person? So when you get down to verse 17 in your Bible, so we're in chapter 2 now, verse 17, it's very clear that he's talking to a Jewish person because he says, now you, if you call yourself a Jew, right? And then he's going to talk about their, their confidence in the law and in circumcision. But back in verse 1, when he first starts this back and forth with this hypothetical uh, debater, it's just you. you. You don't have any sense of his ethnicity or his cultural background. But I think the best arguments support the fact that he's got the Jewish person in mind all the way from verse 1 through chapter 3, verse 8, but he doesn't get real specific until verse 17. So this little chart here is out of our textbook, the recommended book, and I just think it was helpful. You can see how we're, we started with all people, and then we're becoming more focused on religious people, moral people, people who think they're better than other people, and then it's specifically going to zero in on the Jewish person who takes great pride in the law and circumcision. So when we're in verses 1 through 16, I think it's going to be pretty easy for us to draw principles to just moral or religious people in general, much like many of the people that we meet in our everyday life that live in a Christianized culture. But even when we get down to verses 17 and following, when he's talking about the Jewish person, there's still going to be some principles that carry over. So let's pick it up at the top of verse or the top of page 16 in our notes there. So in the previous section, Paul focused on how all men have rejected general revelation and thus stand justly condemned before God. So what they need is special revelation, right? They need some somebody to specifically give them something extra, and then cause them to receive it and to welcome it. In this section, verses 1 through 8, Paul turns to how special revelation has also been rejected by men, specifically by the Jewish people. So just a little quote from our book there by Moo, Paul places Jews in the same category into which he has placed the Gentiles, guilty of sinful acts and without excuse. Now, in order to do this, 
Paul uses a literary device that's called the diatribe. So a diatribe is a common style from their culture. It would have been a, a teaching technique that other people would have used, even in secular context. You, basically, it's a question and answer format. So you, as the writer, you create a fictional opponent, and you put words in his mouth, and then you and that fictional opponent go back and forth debating, question and answer. And we, as the readers, we get to listen in on their debate. Of course, the, the author, Paul, he's controlling both sides, right? So that he can make a point. So the writer enters into a discussion with a fictional opponent as a way of advancing his or her own argument. This style can be seen in the way that Paul uses pronouns. So back in uh, chapter 1, where we just were, it was all third person. It was them, and it was they. He was just talking about all of us in general. Now, all of a sudden, it's this you. So who's the you? He doesn't have like a specific guy like Joe in the church in Rome that he's debating with, right? It's a fictional opponent. So Paul says that the Jewish opponent does the same things. So look at verse 1. He says, You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. So when he talks about judging and judgment, he's not speaking of like in a technical sense, like a trial, a courtroom. He's just talking about the everyday way we would judge another person. So this is you looking at someone else's lifestyle and putting a thumbs down to it. You know, what they're doing is wrong. What they're doing is sin. What Paul is saying there, if you, if you were reading through what I just said in chapter 1, and you kept saying to that, that's sin, that's wrong, they deserve God's wrath. Paul's argument here is that as soon as you did that, you indicted yourself as well, because you also were in that same boat. But he's going to have to develop that a little further, because that's going to be difficult for some of his hearers, perhaps, to accept. So Paul's Jewish conversation partner would have agreed with him, that God's judgment on people who do such things is based on truth. He's going to say that there in verse 2. So, i.e., or, you know, you could put that a different way. It's based on the actual facts of the case. So they would say, yeah, if God judges those people, he has a really good reason for doing it. He has evidence that, that would support it. It's based on truth. However, while acknowledging that God was just and that they were sinners, many first century Jewish people would have put trust in their status as God's covenant people as the means of rescue from the penalty that these sins deserved. So let me just give you a little uh, taste here of some of their own literature. So this is from a document, a piece of Jewish literature. It's called The Wisdom of Solomon. So this isn't scripture at all. This isn't canonical. It's not inspired. It actually, in several places, actually has bad theology. But it was written probably about uh, the same time that Paul is writing the book of, Rome, of Romans. So it's, it's roughly from the same time period. And the writer is saying here, he's expressing a prayer. He says, but you, our God, are kind and true, patient and ruling all things in mercy. For even if we sin, we are yours, knowing your power but we will not sin because we know that you acknowledge us as yours. So see that big emphasis on there on if you'd ask them, well, what's, what's going to be the solution to your sin? How is God going to overlook the fact that you're a sinner? At least this person would have represented the position that would have said, but we're yours. We're your people, God. You, you made a promise to Abraham. We're Abraham's descendants. So we're, we're his. It reminds me of when the, uh, the Pharisees showed up at uh, John the Baptist's preaching. Remember when he's baptizing? And he says, what are you guys doing here? Are you running away? Who told you to flee from the wrath to come? You know, the wrath to come. He called them children of snakes, brood of vipers. And he knows what they are putting confidence in. Because remember he says that God could produce 
children of Abraham out of stones if he wanted to. So the only reason John says that is because he knows that they take great confidence in their covenant relationship with God. Now, it's unlikely that on our everyday basis we would meet someone that would say it just the same way. But there is a principle that carries over. You will meet people that will point to being part of a group as their safety net, right? I was baptized into a church, or I'm part of a Christian family, or I'm part of an Islamic background, or whatever tradition is. They're putting confidence in the fact that they're part of the right group. And that's the specific objection to the gospel that Paul's trying to address here. And it would have been something that he commonly would have heard, and this is the kicker, right, for Paul, it's probably what he himself would have said, right? That he himself would have once said something very much like this. This is what he would have put confidence in. So Paul responds there by noting that God's kindness, forbearance, and patience towards the Jewish people should lead them to repentance. So let me just read that verse, verse 4. Let me back up. I'll go back to verse 3. So let me read verses 3 and 4. He says, So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them, and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of His kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? So yeah, Paul is going to go on a little bit later to say that God's given the Jewish people great privileges. And he has preserved them against all odds. That was true in their day, in Paul's day. It's still true today. That against all odds, against all kinds of forms of anti-Semitism, all kinds of things, humanly speaking, that should bring their end, God has been very kind to them. He's remembered the promise that he made to their forefather, Abraham. But they shouldn't just presume that because God's kind to them that they're right. You see how that would be a mistake? It's always a mistake when things are going well in our life to just automatically assume that's because we've been good. That would be a very pagan way of thinking, right? I, I was very good, so now God's been kind to me. Here, Paul's saying there's actually another explanation for God's kindness. God could just be being kind, and he is specifically here in this context, so that you'll repent, so that through his kindness and through his forbearance, through his patience, you'll eventually turn back to him. So instead of storing up for themselves treasure in the age to come, Paul says, The unbelieving Jewish person, like the Gentile, is storing up wrath for themselves because of their stubbornness and their unrepentant heart. Their national identity would do them no good on the day of judgment if they did not repent. This was also stated by the Old Testament. So, I mean, this is pretty common theme all through the prophets. They regularly were coming up to their fellow Jewish people, their fellow countrymen, pointing out the law and how they had sinned and failed and calling them to repentance. And then John the Baptist shows up at the beginning of the Gospels. He's doing the same thing. He's calling the people to repentance. Just being part of the right group wasn't going to be enough. And then Jesus picks up the torch from John when John goes to prison, and Jesus is preaching the same message. And it's, it's essentially the same message that you and I are preaching today, right? The the one-sentence summary of John and Jesus' preaching was, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And that's essentially the same thing that you and I are preaching today. That there is a kingdom that's coming, there's a day of the Lord that's coming, that will make this world right. All of the things that people are worried about and discouraged about and want to complain about and would like to talk to you about, Christ is the solution to all of those. He will make this world right but you will only enter it if you are right in Christ. And so there has to be both sides of that. The kingdom of heaven is near. It's imminent. It could happen at any moment. Lord willing, it could happen tonight, right? But because of that, we all need to repent when we hear the gospel
message. So turning the page there to page 17. Actually, this will be a good place to stop for a few minutes. We've got a few minutes before the break. Any, any questions? Yes, sir. Yeah, so you're thinking like like Plato's dialogue, yeah. I don't know that for sure. I mean, it, they're similar. I think the difference in the diatribe is the kind of like aggressive back and forth. Like you're assuming that the other person's an opponent. We're in a dialogue. That, that's not necessarily the case, right? I'm not as up on my dialogues, but does that sound right? Yeah. Anybody else have a thought there? So he was asking if the, you know, there's a familiar uh, literary device called the dialogue. Like the famous Greek philosopher Plato uh, used the dialogue format where he goes question and answer back and forth. Tony's question is if that's related to the diatribe. And my question was, I don't know. <laughs> my answer was, I don't know. My answer was, I don't know. I, maybe. But I think the difference with the diatribe, though, at least the way we're familiar with it in the New Testament, is that you're, it's a fictional opponent. So it's not just a fictional inquisitive person. But this is just a very good teaching device, right? I mean, whether we teach kids or whether we're talking to our, our own children, grandchildren, you know, you're going to someone and you're going to try to convince them of something. We are trying to persuade people of something, right? There's nothing wrong with being persuasive. Well, a good thing to always think about ahead of time is what objections will they have? and try to answer their objections before they actually bring them up. It's, it's a more persuasive way of trying to capture people's attention, and Paul's a master at it. Yes? Isn't it possible, I know that some, um, not all of Plato's dialogue was an, an indictment of people, but isn't the tribe actually uh, involved in, in the indictment of man? Yeah, in the sense, that I think, you know, in the diatribe, because the author's, like, controlling both sides of it, he's always going to win the debate, <laughs> you know. So, so it's, it's deliberately created so that you'll expose the weaknesses of the other side with the truth. And because we're talking about um, prophets and apostles who are being directed by the Spirit to create Scripture, then we're always sure that they actually were truthful and right. So, like, you know, I could create a diatribe, maybe. Maybe I couldn't. Maybe somebody else could create a diatribe. And I could make myself win the argument, but I could still be wrong. You know, I could be deceptive. But the scripture writers aren't doing that. What, the conclusion that you come to is actually the right conclusion because it's ultimately God's words. Any other questions here before we take our break? It's a little cooler in here this week, isn't it? It feels nice. Everyone's not going to get up and run to the window as soon as we get done. All right. Well, if there's no questions, why don't we go ahead and take our break then? We're going to start at the top of page 17 in the notes. <laughs> Everyone's having a good time in fellowshipping, visiting. I'm really liking the uh, break time in the middle. That's a nice change. I like it. That's right. That's right. We're starting. That's right. So let's, uh, let's jump in by reading the next paragraph together. So this would be from chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 6 through 11. This is what Paul says here. Remember, he's just got done saying that they've despised God's kindness and patience. And because of their stubbornness and their unrepentant heart, they're actually storing up wrath for themselves on the day of judgment. So now he's going to describe what that judgment will actually look like. So in verse 6, this is what the apostle says. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, 
there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. So kind of that last sentence there, verse 11, kind of captures the whole paragraph. It's all about the fact that our judge will be impartial. Uh, remember, you know, the famous statues of Lady Justice. She always has the blindfold over her eyes. You know, there's not too many things that are despised worse in a culture than a judge who can be bribed or a judge who just favors his friends or his relatives. When we have a judge, we want to be, him to be impartial. We want him to pass judgment on what actually has been done. And that's Paul's point, but it's not a good point, though. <laughs> because if God judges impartially based on what we have done, then this is still part of the bad news section of the letter. So let me just read a little bit from the notes there. Paul makes his argument by using a chiastic structure. So one more literary device. I promise this is the last one for tonight. All right, just one more. One more. So basically, what this is, is it's kind of X-shaped. So it comes from the, the Greek word that means X. The letter X is their letter chi. And it, if you look at that, the way it's parallel, you can imagine that one side of an X over there on the left. We're used to parallel structures from the Psalms. When you're reading the Psalms or sometimes you're reading Proverbs, it almost seems kind of repetitive because it was a familiar way of saying something in a very memorable fashion. You'd, you'd say one line, and then you'd say the same concept, with maybe with different words. And so the two lines are parallel. This is just an expansion on that same idea. So basically, the first thing Paul says is parallel to the last thing. And then if he wants to go further, then the second from the top is parallel to the second in the bottom. And the things in the middle are also parallel. And they do it this way because they really want you to focus on the middle thing. We tend, when we read, we like to kind of read in a straight line, and we tend to focus on either the first thing or the last thing. You know, when we're in a grammar class in elementary, and you know, our teacher, she used to tell us, you know, you have to have a clear thesis statement, you know, a clear sentence, and then you've got to develop it. Or maybe you can have a concluding thought. But they tended often to put the key thing in the middle, and then have this parallel structure. So one way you can think of it is they're, they're walking into the paragraph and they're getting up to their main point, and then after they've got to their main point, they're walking back away from it, and they're repeating the same things backwards. So when you see that type of structure, it helps you focus on what's in the middle. So you notice there that verse 6 is essentially saying the same thing as verse 11. God will judge people according to their works, according to their deeds. And he will be impartial. It's not going to matter at the final judgment what ethnicity you're from or what church you belong to or what covenant group you were a part of, which was this specific objection that he's addressing here. It's going to be, what did you do? How do you measure up against my perfect moral law? So then 7 and 10 are parallel. People who do good will attain eternal life which is then parallel to there will be glory. There will be glory. That's parallel with eternal life for people who do good. But his focus isn't on the people who do good. His focus is on the people who do evil. So people who do evil will suffer wrath. Or, to say that the other way around, he just immediately starts reversing himself. There will be wrath for those who do evil. So let's kind of take those parallel statements together, and I'll put them side by side here in the notes. So the first point from verse, verses 6 and 11 is God is impartial. So he will use the same standard to judge everyone, their works. One passage you could think of right here is, remember, the final scene in Revelation, the white throne judgment. Remember, there's books that are opened, and it's our deeds, right? What have we actually accomplished? 
So Paul uses this phrase, he will repay each person according to what they've done. And you can see that in most of our English Bibles, there's quotes there because this is an exact quote. It actually could come from two different places in the Old Testament because there's two different places that have basically the same words, Psalm 62.12 and Proverbs 24.12. You see how that would be a powerful argument because Paul's talking to his fellow Jewish people who know the Old Testament, and he's basically saying this is something you should already know from the Old Testament, that God will repay each person according to what they've done. As uh, one of the writers here that I appreciate, Frank Thielman, he puts it, the critical criteria at the judgment will be their inner disposition toward God and the way of life it produced. God will not render judgment on what people possess, know, or hear, nor will his judgment take into account the social group with which they identify. So then moving to the next layer, that would be verses 7 and 10, the second from the top and the second from the bottom. People who persistently do good will attain glory and eternal life. And I want to put the emphasis on the persistently part. That's really important to Paul's argument. He's not saying people who occasionally do good or mostly do good. He's talking about people who persistently do good. He, he says that two times. First time he uses the word persistence, and then he uses the word seek, a person who's regularly seeking after good. So he's emphasizing the consistency of good works. Now this is one of the, the big uh, debates in Romans. So we had one last week that we had to tackle. What does it mean that there's righteousness that's being revealed? This is probably the big one for tonight. So there's two ways that this verse can be reconciled with what Paul will later say about the impossibility of our good works making us right with God. You, you could potentially be talking to a Roman Catholic friend or another professing Christian who has more of a, a merit-based theology to varying degrees. Not everyone has exactly the same viewpoints. But they might point to this passage and say, look, you know, this backs me up. Paul's saying here, if you do good, you get eternal life. If you do evil, you won't. I mean, that seems very merit-based. You see how they could make that argument? Well, there's two ways that that's been responded to. So there's two evangelical or there's two gospel-believing ways to respond. The first one is that Paul could be referring to the fruit of the Spirit produced in the lives of Christians. Some of you were in my Matthew class last year, right? We looked at all of those places in the Gospel of Matthew where both John and Jesus talk about fruit. Because if we've been born again, we have the Holy Spirit living inside us, we will inevitably produce fruit. So he, that could be what Paul's referring to. And I give you the names of some good scholars who have argued that position. But the one I think is right is always going to be the last position, right? I'm just, that's, that's always the clue. In my opinion, Paul's more likely presenting the standard God uses in determining whether each, any man, any human, is worthy of eternal life. But Christ only meets the standard. And I give you a couple other sources. This actually in the footnote there, if, if you want to dig deeper and you like to read things online, there's a good presentation on the Gospel Coalition website. You can, you can see a longer explanation of this. But basically, the argument here, and I think it's correct, is that at this point in the letter, Paul is still focusing on the bad news. He's, he's got his fictional opponent who thinks he's good. He thinks he's okay. And Paul's trying to show him that he's not. So starting to talk about the fruit of the Spirit, it wouldn't make sense at this part, point of the argument. Also, just the way he structured this, right? The emphasis is on the good, I mean on the bad. It's on the evil. It's on the receiving the wrath. So there's several different arguments, I think, that support the fact that what Paul's saying here is that there is a standard that God will hold all of us to. And it's a standard of persistently, always, consistently doing what's right and good. And it's to that type of person he will give eternal life. And none of us will meet that standard. There's only been one human that will. It was Jesus Christ. And so as the letter develops, we're going to realize the only way that we can have eternal life is in Christ. It's in union with Christ. We will get into the kingdom on Christ's coattails, so to speak.
on his merits, not our own. At this point, we're supposed to see that we are deserving of God's wrath. So I say there, therefore, in this context, Paul presents the hopeless situation in which we all find ourselves, the Jewish person included, apart from Christ's righteousness. Other New Testament passages indeed describe the importance of the believer's spirit-enabled works at the final judgment, and I give you some of those, but that's not Paul's focus here in this part of Romans chapter 2. So this is, I think, his central point. It's in the middle, verses 8 and 9. People who do evil will suffer God's wrath. You notice how before it was you had to be persistently, always, consistently doing good. But with the evil, it's just if you do evil. It's any evil, right? Any, any act of rebellion, breaking even one of God's laws, right, will end you in this, in this boat, will send you down this path. There's a contrast here between those two. So verse 8 clarifies that it's not just the outward actions that will be judged, but also the underlying selfish ambitions of men. Notice there in verse 8, it says, but for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. You could be talking to someone and you know, they could say, well, you know, I'm just not really that bad. You know, I just don't do all the really bad things. You know, maybe, maybe Hitler deserves hell. Osama bin Laden, he deserves hell. You know, Politicians in Washington, they deserve hell. You know, they could name all kinds of horrible people, right? But I'm a good person. And, and you can usually quickly in a conversation realize that's where they're headed because they'll start talking about all the good things that they do and they want you to know about that, right? It's, it's just a human condition that we're all susceptible to. But one of the things that we can do, and, and I can't tell you exactly how to do this, right? Because every conversation is different. But you can gently just help them realize that they're, they're self-seeking. That they actually wake up every morning thinking, what can I do for myself? How can I please myself? They're essentially selfish people, and really the idol of their life is them. Right? They're worshiping themselves. That's what Paul's referring to here as self-seeking. Even that kind of inner attitude would make us all worthy of God's wrath. So both the Jew and the Gentile will suffer God's wrath, flipping the page. The Jewish person's privileges do not excuse them at the judgment, but instead make them first in receiving them. So you see what he does there? He's going to go on to say, you've actually been given great privileges. And with those privileges come greater responsibility. And so at the judgment, you will actually be first in receiving judgment. Again, this isn't, this isn't a, an outsider speaking in some kind of anti-Semitic way. This is a fellow Jewish person who used to think the way that his opponent thinks, and he's kindly telling them that they need to repent. So let's go to the next paragraph then. This would be verses 12 through 16. Let me just read that for us. He says, All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it's those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. And then a little bit of a parenthesis. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even, even defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. So in this section here, top of page 18, verses 12 through 16, Paul addresses the objection that the Jewish people possess the law of Moses and are thus not in the same situation as Gentiles, with whom God had not made a covenant at Sinai. Paul answers that both Gentiles and Jews will perish. So, again, the objection would be, well, we have the law. We're different. Yeah, yeah you've painted this picture of humanity in general, but that's not us, because we had the Mosaic law. 
And Paul's answer to that is it's not just having it, it's actually doing it. Yes? I was just going to say, the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't, isn't that kind of what Jesus was trying to point out to them at that time, that they, they look at the surface of the law, they don't see the depths of their own sin not being able to, you know, how deep it is to be perfect before God. Yeah, absolutely. It's Paul, right? Yeah, so Paul, if you didn't hear, Paul brought up a good point that this is essentially the same thing that Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount, that there was a, a superficial keeping of the law that would have deceived some people to think they were okay. And it seems like one of Jesus' points in the Sermon on the Mount is to say that true repentance would also look like inner, inner changes. So not just murder, but also not hating. Yep, I definitely think so. Yeah, so he wasn't changed. So Jesus wasn't changing the law. Sometimes I think that's a misconception of the Sermon on the Mount. That, but I think if, let's say, like Hannah or Ruth or David or Samuel, if they had been there at the Sermon on the Mount and they heard what Jesus was saying, they would have said yes. That's what I always thought the law was teaching me to do. It was never supposed to be superficial or on the surface. All right, so here's kind of a kind of a snapshot of the whole whole paragraph so that you can see it. So his his main point in this paragraph, I think, is that both Gentiles and Jew, Jewish sinners, that should say Jewish sinners, will be condemned and perish. Having or not having the Mosaic law will make no difference. So that's what he says in verse 12. Well, then he supports that. So you can see in verse 13, you've got that little word for. So these, it's these little connective words that always help us trace the argument. So why can you say that, Paul? Well, his answer in verse 13, what really matters at the final judgment is whether you did God's law or not, or not whether you had it. And again, this is something that the Old Testament itself had already told them. So this is just one of several passages that we could go to. But this is from Leviticus 18, 4 through 5. It says, You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and laws, for the person who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord. So he did promise an everlasting life, a life on the other side of resurrection, a home someday in the promised land. That was promised to them, but they could only earn it themselves if they kept the law, if they perfectly kept the law, and no one was able to keep that except for Christ. Verse 16 then, so after that little bit of a digression, so basically in verses 14 through 15, he goes on a side there, and he says, God is just to condemn Gentiles who do not have the Mosaic law because he's given them a conscience, and they violate their own conscience. So I think just for a second, he stops his, his debate with the hypothetical Jewish opponent, and he thinks back toward the Gentile. Remember, because this is a real-life letter. He knows that different people are going to read this. And some people might be reading this and thinking, well, how does this relate to, to me as a Gentile? And his answer to that is, you, you also did have God's law. It wasn't given to you in a written format with all of the details that were given to Moses at Mount Sinai, but you were given a conscience. A conscience is almost, I like to think of it as like a smoke detector, right? The smoke detector doesn't really create fires. It just detects if they're there. It tells you that there's a problem, and it's always dangerous to ignore your smoke detector. It could be your waffles that are setting it off, but you still shouldn't ignore it, right? You can train your conscience. You can train your conscience with Scripture. But if your conscience is screaming at you that this is wrong, Paul's later in this letter going to say it's always a sin to not listen to your conscience. The answer is keep training it, but it's always listened to. Well, where did that conscience come from? Well, that's one of the things from chapter 1. That was part of that software package that you and I all came into this world with, that we had God's law written on our hearts. There were basic things that we already knew that were right and wrong. Well, then the Gentile could say, yeah, but they're not as specific as what the law of Moses was. And Paul's answer is, yeah, but you already broke the ones that you had, right? You broke the laws that you had. God was never obligated to give you more. And if you broke the ones that you had, 
then you should assume that you also would have broken if he'd given more to you. See how that works? So not having the physical law, the law of Moses, isn't an excuse for us as Gentiles because we had the law of God written on our hearts. So when will this all take place? When he gets down to verse 16, he describes the judgment will occur when God judges the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. So verse 16, let me just read that one more time. He says, this will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets. So again, it has to do with your interior thoughts and motivations. And he'll do it through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. So Jesus is the one who God has chosen to be the judge. He'll be the one who exercises judgment. And this is also part of the gospel. Isn't that interesting? So we would maybe sometimes have a tendency to shrink the gospel down to just the good news part of it. And it's true, gospel means good news. But also it's part of that message that Paul's preaching, part of his gospel, that there's going to be this judgment. And at the judgment, God is going to be impartial. And he's actually going to judge you not on who you are, but on what you did. And if we have to go to that judgment with our own record, then we're all lost, right? We have no hope. We have to go to that judgment with someone else's record. And that's where he's driving to in chapter 3. All right, and I'll stop there for a second. Are there any questions at that point? All right, we'll just, we'll just start into the next section. We, we probably won't finish it. We just have a few minutes left. But the next section would go from chapter 17, or I'm sorry, that'd be a big section, right? Verse 17 through verse 29. So we're still in chapter 2, verses 17 through 29. So the basic point of this section, I've got it in the notes and up here on the slide. Again, I'm quoting from Moo in our recommended book. The basic point of this section is to show that the legitimate Jewish boast in possessing the law and circumcision falls short of bringing salvation to the Jewish people. So first of all, he zeroes in on the law in verses 17 through 24. Let me read some of that for you. So starting in verse 17, he says, Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, If you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob idols? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blaspheme among the Gentiles because of you. So there in verses 18 through 20, Paul's point is that the Jewish people were given the great privilege of possessing the law and being able to share it with those who did not have it. He's, he's using probably some of their own terms here. It's not only something that they would have thought of as a privilege, but also something that they would have boasted in. This again reminds me of Matthew chapter 23, when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, right? And he says that you'll cross, you'll cross the ocean to make followers, and then when you find them, you'll make them twice a child of hell as you are. Do you remember that? I'm, that's my Ryan Meyer paraphrase. But that's essentially what he says to them, right? It's very strong language. So they, they seems, based on what Jesus says there, there was some missionary endeavors among some religious Jewish people where they were trying to go seek converts among the Gentiles because they actually thought that they had something good to share, that they had this great privilege. But again, Paul's going to emphasize, but you're not actually keeping your own law. So in verses 22 through 23, Paul gives examples of how the Jewish people have not lived up to this great privilege. Of course, not every Jewish person has committed all of these offenses, but these are the types of sins committed by the Jewish people as a whole, represented by Paul's fictitious opponent. I think we're 
pretty used to this in Paul's letters, right? He'll, he'll give one of these long lists of all kinds of different sins, and he doesn't assume that you've committed all of those, but you see yourself in there somewhere. We always see ourselves somewhere in that list. There's a wide variety of different ways that the same rebellion against God can manifest in our life. And so he knows that his fictitious opponent here will see himself. Probably the most difficult one is the, the robbing temples. So what does he mean that his Jewish opponent has robbed temples? It's debated since this does not seem like something that was regularly done. But it likely refers to the practice of profiting from goods taken from pagan temples. So you know, there's only, well, I, I shouldn't say that. There's, a, there's the one temple in Jerusalem. They also had some kind of temple in Egypt. There weren't like a bunch of Jewish temples. So when he says temples, plural, he's referring to pagan temples. And maybe not them like going in incognito and stealing stuff, but somehow they were having access to the items that originally were part of this temple and they were profiting from them. So that's one explanation. It's a difficult passage, but that sounds plausible. They were taking items, probably precious metals, and selling them from pagan temples, which was a violation of the law of Moses. All right, I think that's a good place to, to stop. And we'll pick up at the top of page 19 when we come back next week, Lord willing. All right, thanks for coming tonight.